Hi everyone. Uh, let's let's pray and uh, ask God to help us. Um, I'll, sorry, I should just say before I pray, there's an outline of my talk in the blue sheet, um, and we'll also follow along there. But keep the Bible open at John chapter three, uh, John chapter uh, uh, twelve. So let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that our hearts might be calmed and quieted before you, and that uh, you would help us to listen to your word. We pray you would help us to engage and think about it, and we pray too that you would help us to receive it humbly, knowing that these are the, the words which you speak to us from your sanctuary in heaven, which are true, which are good for us. So, Father, please help us to receive these words with faith. Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, people who have heard me preach many times will know that I've, I've always been somewhat interested in the Packers and the Murdochs. I, I used to read a bit about them, you know, the, the two original Australian billionaire families. Um, my, my grandfather had met uh, Frank Packer and Kerry Packer. Uh, and so, not that he was an important man, he wasn't. <laughs> But um, I, I, I've, I've just sort of picked up a few stories about uh, these wealthy Australian families. And uh, when James Packer uh, got married for the first time, which I think was about 1998 or so, um, they followed the tradition of uh, giving a, a small present to each person who was a guest at the wedding. The trouble is the small present that was given uh, to everyone who attended James and Jody's wedding uh, was a $10,000 gift. There were about 500 people at the wedding, and each of the men received a lovely watch, and the ladies all received a lovely piece of jewellery. The gift they got was worth 10000 bucks each, and all of the guests were asked not to bother bringing presents because they were going to be receiving a present that was much better than they could afford to give. Now, when Catherine and I got married a couple of years later, we also followed that tradition and gave a small gift to those who everybody got um, a small cardboard box with some sugared almonds on it. And it was lovely. Uh, so, this is the whole question about extravagance. And uh, there's, all, there's a sort of, it's an interesting ethical question, isn't it? Extravagance. Uh, raises interesting ethical questions. Uh, when there's an act of public celebration like the New Year's Eve fireworks, the question is, well, should we as a community be spending $25 million on something which is over quite briefly uh, when, when you could you could do a lot with that money, right? It's a, I, I don't necessarily think it's a wrong thing to do, but it's a question that needs to be asked. Uh, there, there's been questions recently about whether we should have spent money lighting up the Opera House for this or that occasion. And I think we didn't do it for the, for the King's coronation. Uh, you know, do, do we spend money on having a, a public celebration like the Commonwealth Games? And that's been our debate just recently. <coughs> when is extravagance appropriate is the kind of ethical question we're grappling with. And this is the question that was prompted by uh, a memorable act of devotion uh, which was performed on Jesus a few days before his death. Uh, so we, we've seen in, in recent weeks as we've been through John's Gospel that the closer Jesus got to Jerusalem, the more danger he was in because Jerusalem was where his opponents were centred. Uh, and we know we've been observing how Jesus would 
be in Jerusalem and then he would make a strategic withdrawal because of his opponents uh, and then he would come back for some reason or other. Now, at the start of chapter 12, Jesus is returning again to Bethany, this little town just a few kilometres out from Jerusalem, coming back into harm's way for the last time. The reason it's for the last time is that this is uh, only a week before his death. We're only halfway through John's Gospel, chapter 12 of 21, but this is actually just a week before Jesus' death. His friends don't realise that. They believe he's coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and that he won't be deterred by his enemies from being in Jerusalem where he wants to be for the Passover. But Jesus knows, obviously God the Father in his supreme plan knows, that this will be the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Now, as was Jesus' practice, he stayed in this little town, Bethany, where he had some friends, and they made a dinner in his honour on this occasion. Now, I think it's a lovely detail we receive there that Lazarus, the man that Jesus had raised from the dead, was there having dinner with them. Now, you would expect that, of course, because Lazarus is a prominent member of, uh, of the Bethany community with a new reason for being a celebrity. Uh, but it just brings home the reality, doesn't it, of that stunning miracle which Jesus had performed, calling Lazarus out of his grave. And now there's Lazarus having dinner with, uh, with the, the, the friends from Bethany. Now, it was during the dinner that Lazarus's sister Mary performed this memorable act of devotion. It's something that obviously wasn't just a spur-of-the-moment thing, she had decided that she wanted to do it and she planned it. Uh, and at some point, maybe just after they finished their meal, who knows exactly when, but <coughs> as they were there at the table, she came with an extremely expensive bottle of perfume they called nard, which as Andrew explained to us, actually comes from India. And, and she, she poured out the whole of this bottle on Jesus' feet. Uh, Matthew and Mark also tell us that, that she poured it on his head as well. So she, she gave him a real dousing with this perfume, uh, poured it all out, and John records for us that the whole house was filled with the perfume, with the aroma uh, of the perfume. It's an extravagant gesture of devotion. It used up all the perfume in one go. And once that beautiful aroma, which filled the house, had dissipated, well, that would be then, that's the end of the bottle of perfume. Uh, I was once at a house uh, when a friend of a friend set up a sparkler bomb. Uh, I was, um, when I was sort of 19, I was... Uh, I lived in West Bennett Hills, and I had a friend who sort of lived out Dural and Kenthurst Way on big properties, and this um, this friend of a friend showed up, and he decided he wanted to do a sparkler bomb. Now, uh, if you haven't seen the sparkler bomb, I'll tell you a bit about it. Um, he had been to the shops, and he'd spent about $200 on sparklers. Now, to me, at 19 years old, that sounded like a lot of money, because these were the days of part-time jobs and it would have taken me a lot of hours of work to earn this $200. Well, he strapped the sparklers together in a sort of a bunch like that. It would have been probably that thick. And then he, he put it on this sort of, you know, uh, 
sort of ditch that he created in the ground to hold the sparklers. Uh, he used one of the sparklers as a sort of a wick, and then he lit it up, and it sparkled down. And then, of course, the whole the whole bunch took on fire, and we saw this wonderful shaft of of fire, sparkly fire, just burn up into the sky for about ten seconds, and then it was like. And, and we loved watching this sparkler bomb. But uh, it had taken my friend of a friend 10 seconds, literally, to burn $200. I'm sure that the aroma from Mary's perfume remained for much longer than the 10 seconds of the sparkler bomb. And it was also a much more expensive gift. But the analogy is, this was an expensive gesture that was all over very quickly. And I suppose that's the way, isn't it, with extravagant gestures, isn't it? Uh, they're, they're over very quickly. But it raises the question about whether it's justified. And uh, Mary's gesture here leads to what is actually quite a complex ethical discussion. Although, as is typical of the Bible and writers such as John, they manage to wrap up a lot of the complexity into a short and vivid four verses or so. Well, Judas opened the debate. It's always a worry when Judas is opening a debate, but here we go. Judas said, listen, what a waste this was. Think of how much we could have done if we'd sold this perfume uh, to raise money for the poor. Now, there's a superficial correctness, isn't there, about Judas's argument. The perfume is a luxury item. This perfume is the sort of thing that you would, you would have bought from that posh and eerily quiet level at Bondi Junction, Westfield, where Prada is located. Mm -hmm. I always feel, I, mean, I try to get through that section quickly. <laughs> um, anyway, in our money, this, this, this perfume's worth thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of dollars. You could do a lot of good with that money. Why use it up on an extravagant gesture? Well, John, uh, John lets us in on the hypocrisy that was behind Judas's question. Uh, Judas, well, of course he would have liked to see that money sold to the poor because then the money would go into the disciples' money bag and guess who has charge of that? Judas. And he used to help himself to some of the money. And this just reminds us that ethical decisions are not made in an ivory tower. They're made amongst real people with a real motive, some of which are good, some are not so good. Um, people talk these days about virtue signalling, uh, which is a form of hypocrisy where somebody is attempting to show how good they are while actually they don't care about the people that they claim to care about. Judas's words here just go to show you that virtue signalling is as old as the human race. But uh, notice that Jesus, in engaging with uh, Judas's comment, Jesus doesn't sort of say, oh, you know, you're just virtue signaling. He actually engages with the real substance of Judas's question, and he offers an answer. And what I want you to notice is that Jesus makes it about himself. So the answer is particularly verse 8. If you have a look there, Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. 
Now, normally, we can't stand a person who makes it all, who always makes things about themselves, can we? Like, there's nothing as tedious as listening to, uh, li- trying to have a conversation with a person who turns every topic back onto themselves and makes themselves the subject. But Jesus actually does that here, doesn't he? Uh, and it's something that he often did. Uh, Jesus called himself the bridegroom. Like, just not the bridegroom at a particular wedding, but just the bridegroom of the whole of history. Uh, Jesus, when Jesus gave his sermon on the mount and said, you'll be blessed if you're persecuted, he said, you're going to be blessed if you're persecuted for my sake. He, he would often bring it back to himself. But that is because Jesus is the only person with the right to put himself at the centre. He actually has the right to make about himself because he is the Lord. What justifies Mary's extravagance here is, well, the dinner guest is the king of the universe. If you had the king of the universe as your dinner guest, wouldn't you provide the best that you had in the house? Wouldn't you, if you happened to have a a bottle of perfume that was perhaps a family heirloom, wouldn't you crack it open for him? And in a sense, Jesus is even more than just the creator of the universe to Mary that day, because Jesus is he's the king of the universe who has also stooped down and reached out to Mary to be her friend. He's, he's her friend, as he is to the whole of Lazarus' household. Uh, now, if, if you're a Christian, then the king of the universe has stooped down to you and said, I'm going to make you my friend. Now, if, if that's your situation, I mean, don't you want to do something to show Jesus your devotion? If we don't feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude that drives us to devotion to the Lord Jesus, well, what's wrong with us? And this is not even to mention that this is only a week before Jesus is going to die to save the world. So, we're, we're, I mean, this is this is the, the three years that, that the creator of the universe is there in public ministry, present on earth, right? And then not only that, but this is the week that he will die to save the world. It's the most significant time. Uh, I don't think, and, and I never have thought that Mary realised Jesus was going to die. I don't think that that she she did this consciously, anointing him because he was to be buried. It's possible that Mary was given some prophetic knowledge of Jesus' coming death and that that's why she anointed him like this. Uh, It's possible. I've tended to think that she simply wanted to do this for Jesus uh, and that Jesus then interpreted it as a preparation for his burial. Either way, what Jesus goes on to say here is that Mary has done this to, to anoint him for burial. Uh, because he is he's the creator, he's the king, he's the saviour, and he is to die this week for the sins of the world. It was only a week later that they were going to be anointing his body with the spices for burial. Now, 
No one who understood who Jesus was and what he had, what he was about to do, no one could possibly suggest that there was a better use for this perfume than to honour Jesus. It's funny, people think about Jesus teaching as the basis for our ethics, and it is. But when Jesus spoke, his, his teaching was very rarely just about ethics. Very rarely would Jesus ever speak just in, the, in terms of, well, here's a list of instructions. You should be compassionate. You should tell the truth. You know, you shouldn't commit adultery, for example. Uh, he, he didn't teach that way. Uh, generally, his, his teaching always had to do with his own identity. And often it had to do with his own impending death as well. Jesus expected the worship and the devotion and the adoration that was due to him as the Son of God and as the Saviour. Uh, people commonly think that religion is all about being nice to others and that there's really nothing more to it and that all of the God stuff is just sort of window dressing and almost even optional. You know, if it helps you to be nice to think about it in terms of God, then good on you. And, and, if, it's, and if that's not important to you, then you can, you can just have the religion just as being nice. But that is actually a, a huge mistake. Uh, think about the Ten Commandments, for example. Uh, they are partly about how to treat others. You know, no killing, no stealing, no adultery. But the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about devotion to God, aren't they? Right? No, no other gods, no idols, no taking God's name in vain, keeping God's Sabbath holy. So the Ten Commandments actually, they, they, they major to begin with on worship and adoration. It's only then that they move into sort of human-to-human -human ethics. And I think that our devotion to God is actually a powerful shaper of how we live. By honouring Jesus and by bowing down to him in worship the way he deserves, that's actually how we turn ourselves into people who will be compassionate like Jesus is, for example. Because you become like what you worship. Uh, it is not at all true that the different religions all teach the same way to be nice. Uh, Hinduism, for example, has the caste system uh, in which people who are born into different categories, purely on the basis of the way they're born, are treated differently. Now that's actually quite the opposite of the way Christianity teaches, isn't it? Where we're all meant to be treated the same. Uh, what Mary understood uh, that day is that it, it's, it's not enough just to follow Jesus' teachings if, if if you, if you think Jesus' teachings are just be nice, right? It's, it's not enough just to do that. It's also necessary to love and adore and worship and honour Jesus. If we're not worshipping him, then well, we're not obeying him anyway, because he said we should worship him. And worshipping him is the only way that we will be transformed into the, the, the people who do the deeds that he wants us to do. So it was a, I'm just trying to, I just want to help us to sort of get 
just want to grab you guys. Um, I don't quite, I don't know any other way to put it. Um, I'm just trying to grab you. Can someone, maybe we just need the air conditioner on so that minus 15 or something like that. <laughs> That'll get us. Anyway, um, try to stay with me. Um, I, I've made the big point that you, Jesus deserves our worship. And, and that's absolutely essential to, to what we're doing here. Um, but I also want to guard against a misconception that Jesus was sidelining uh, the duty to care for the poor here. Because you could read it that he was doing that. He was saying, oh, he says, well, look, you've always got the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Uh, but Jesus would not likely sideline that commandment to help the poor. And the reason why he wouldn't sideline it is because it's part of the Old Testament. He's actually quoting the Old Testament there, isn't he? The, the passage from Deuteronomy which we read. Uh, but for Jesus, it would have been a sacred duty to care for the poor because that is what his father's word says to do. Uh, the verse which he quotes is Deuteronomy 15, 11 which says, uh, there will always be poor people in the land. Uh, Therefore I command you, he says, to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. As we read through Deuteronomy, it was interesting because back up in, I think it's verse 3, it says, there's no need for there to be poor people because there'll be enough to go around. But then he also goes on to say, there will always be poor people. What that means is, there will always be poor people, but that'll actually be because that'll be because of our sin, not because there's not enough to go around. Um, so this duty, therefore, to be open-handed to the poor, uh, this is this is a sacred duty to Jesus um, because it's a word from His Father. Uh, this duty to help the poor is a real duty of everyone who follows Jesus, and it should be on our hearts today. Um, How will you help? How are you helping? In asking this question, uh, I I by no means have all the solutions here today, but I just want to name the fact that people are talking at the moment about a cost of living crisis, and I believe it is real, And I believe it is impacting people, even in what is a relatively well-off area here in Randy. It's impacting not only the poor, but also people with mortgages and many people that you would think of as middle class. Uh, How can can we help? Uh, Well, in preparing for this sermon, I have not thought of how to solve the crisis. Um, But... I want to say this, the more people that we know in real situations, the better we might know how we can help. Uh, We shouldn't think that we're helping merely by saying that the government should do such and such, or that this or that other person should do something with their money. Uh, In fact, that's precisely what Judas said, isn't it? That, oh, you should have done something different with your money. Giving to a charity like Anglicare or St Vinnie's is a good thing to do, uh, though it doesn't usually lead to relationship with the person that you're helping. Helping a person in relationship is the best sort of help. So I'm really encouraging us to, 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 to try to know the people around us, and that might give us some insight into how 
people can be helped. Uh, as, a, as a small thing, like this is a small thing, um, but um, we have a, a, an opportunity through the school to help. Um, the Presbyterian Church contacted the school and said, look, are there some needy people in the school community um, whom we could send a hand to? And the school came back and they gave him four names. And, uh, well, actually, I, I don't think they've given them the names, but they've said there's four people that we could help if, if you pass the hand on to us. Now, at St. Jude's, we've decided... I would like to put a grocery voucher into each one of those hampers to the value of at least $100. Uh, and if you want to, if you tell me that you can sponsor one of those vouchers, that would be fantastic. You can talk to me afterwards. Uh, or, or even just, you know, scan it onto the, scan through to the online uh, connect card on the back of your blue bulletin and let us know that way. That's a small way that we might be able to help. But I, I'm encouraging you that to, to, you know, there's no easy way to solve this crisis, but I'm encouraging you just to, to know the people around you, uh, to, to pray for people, uh, and to just through relationship to work out what might be ways that we can help people. Well, the tension in this story about Jesus is he, moves inexorably towards the cross, continues to mount. Uh, just in those last few verses, we, we're reminded the sheer existence of Lazarus was infuriating to the Jewish leadership because Lazarus was literally living proof of Jesus' miraculous power, wasn't he? So he was the reason why many people were believing in Jesus and as a result of that, they were plotting to kill Lazarus as well. Interestingly, we never hear about how those plots turned out. I, I guess they didn't get it, uh, but we, we're never told. What we do know is that the plot against Jesus was destined to be carried out only six days from this time. Well, uh, to conclude, uh, three very brief conclusions, sort of just summary points, really. First of all, I think it's really important just that this story is lodged in our minds. Just to remember that Mary performed this extravagant act of devotion towards Jesus and he commended it because he's the Lord, because he deserves our devotion and our adoration and he deserves to be honoured by us. Uh, second of all, because Jesus is the Lord, he does expect that devotion. Uh, it is not only good deeds that he wants from us, it's actually the devotion whereby I treat him as my Lord and my God. How do you show your devotion to Jesus? Now, clearly a central part of that is prayer, because that's, that I think is the central way that we, we, we engage in that relationship of treating him as Lord and God. Uh, but how can you be more like Mary, who just had this spontaneous welling up of her desire to show that she loves the Lord Jesus? Third of all, the command to help the poor is real and it was never abolished. And it's highly relevant at the moment. We need to work out ways of genuinely helping people, ways that go beyond just agitating for someone else to do something, which is so easy for us to do, isn't it? Um, 
ways which actually amount to us helping where we have the opportunity. So uh, I'm sure that would be a profitable conversation for us to have over um, supper today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe uh, and so, so aware of the inadequacy of our efforts, the inadequacy of our devotion to you and our honouring and worshipping of you, and also the, uh, the, the, the not enough, the fact that it's what, what we do to the poor or we share uh, is so much less than it could be. Heavenly Father, we ask you to forgive us and we ask you please that uh, we might become better at these things, more pleasing to you in these things, uh, and that you would help us, Father, to show the devotion that Jesus deserves, and not to forget the poor. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.